Blog Talk Radio. Another week of uh, great interviews as well as news 
and politics. I am coming to you pre-recorded today, so I just want to let you know, do not call in today because this is this is pre-recorded. What I want you to do, however, is to just sit back, call the family together, and listen to the right voice uh, today, which I consider a very special broadcast um, that was put together to highlight uh, Heroes Among Us. In fact, that is the title of today's broadcast, Heroes Among Us, Adoption and Vietnam. And you will see why this month we have uh, two very important observances. I guess if we count Thanksgiving, we could say more than two, but two really important observances um, in which we focus on on some, some true heroes. So we are going to dive right in. Again, thank you and hold your calls, please. As we all know, on Wednesday, we observed a very, very important observance in our nation, and that is, is Veterans Day, which is that time when we pay tribute to all who have who have served and who have you know who have worn the uniform, uh, many of whom have fought battles that we cannot even imagine. And their service and sacrifice are too valuable, really, to acknowledge just once a year. So uh, many of us are mindful often of our military and those um, serving, or in the case of uh, our veterans, those who have served, and, uh, and make it a habit even when we see military, see people in uniform, to actually thank them for their service. So not wanting to just leave that topic of veterans to, to just the past Wednesday, I decided that I wanted to invite a special guest on to speak to us. His name is David Cordell, and, and he is a husband, a father, he's a pastor, and he is a Vietnam veteran. And in just a few minutes that we have with him, he's going to talk to us about his experience in the military and, and share a couple stories with us. And you'll realize as you listen to uh, Pastor David Cordell that he really should not be alive to tell these stories. Um, God obviously had a plan. So um, I want to invite him in. He's, he's already called in. I'm going to invite him into this conversation that we're having and let you hear from him yourself. Uh, Pastor David Cordell, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us on the Right Voice Radio. We appreciate having you on. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Yeah, so we're going to jump right in. And we'll start with, with how you came to be in the Army to begin with. I, I did specify to our audience that, that you are a Vietnam veteran, but uh, how did you get into the military to begin with? What drew you in? Uh, just after high school, and I was young and very immature, of course, and I wanted to see some of the world and have some excitement, and so I volunteered draft, and I got both. Mm-hmm. So you were you said you were drafted in? No, I volunteered draft at eighteen. Oh, okay. So you volunteered because you were looking at this as a time of, of some excitement. Correct. I wanted to see the world and have a little excitement and I got mm-hmm. to see both and have both. I, I guess you did. I guess you did. Now did the did the concept of going to war I mean, did you really like flesh that out? Did you think about what that might entail? Uh, actually, at that age, uh, I was actually wanting to be involved. And once I went into training through basic and infantry training, uh, I wanted to go to Vietnam and fight. If they had not given me orders to go, I would have um, volunteered. But as it was, they cut orders, and so I went with their orders. 
Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about what, I mean, I know you said you wanted to go, but as the day approaches, did you have any regrets? What emotions were you experiencing? You know, the hardest thing is to leave my wife. We were married at 18 between basically every training. Mm-hmm. We've been married 49 years now. Wow. And um, it was hard to leave her, of course. And I can still remember being on the tarmac at the airport looking out and seeing them waving at me, et cetera, and having to leave for war. So it mm-hmm. was a, you know, a hard feeling. Right. Okay, so okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the war. I I know that you have experienced things that you really should not have lived through because I've I've heard some of those stories and I understand my, my dad uh was in Vietnam and I understand that that many veterans do not share everything. Um but tell us something in the war in particular that you endured that was a miracle to survive. Uh, there's several things. Uh, one time I tripped a booby trap hand grenade two feet from my right leg. It did mm-hmm. not explode. And mm-hmm. then later a mortar round landed right in front of me and bounced around, and it did not explode. And then once mm-hmm. in a major battle, <clears throat> the very photo I have on my website, uh, four days after that was taken, that helmet I'm wearing was tore off my head in a major battle. And I did not have a scratch on me, though I was semi-conscious. Uh, another time, I walked into an enemy base camp. Um, it looked like it was abandoned, so I told two men to go one way. I went by myself another direction. And I ended up walking up on a kitchen bunker where they cook in. Had mm-hmm. seven chickens walking in front. And I walked up 15 feet away, and suddenly five of the seven men in the bunker stood up on me. The one at the door actually smiled at me. I think it was a horrified look on my face. And I drove behind a termite hill. They're very like concrete in the jungle and began to fight. And um, I ended up surviving it, obviously. Mm. Wow. So you had you had experience after experience of things that you that you shouldn't that you should not have lived through that at any time you could have been you could have been taken out and that that leads to I know your your testimony why are you still here right obviously God protected me and um, you know, at the time I thought I was just lucky but years later uh, when I came to God I realized He had protected me and I have returned now to Vietnam twenty times since the war, and mm-hmm. uh, God, uh, in those trips, was doing some healing. Um, my fourth trip, uh, I felt that I wanted to go back to a village very close to where that bunker was that I walked up on. The village is called Ben Sook. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, to assistant village chief, I met a man that was a Viet Cong that was about 50 meters from where I was fighting that day. And he led us back to the graves of those five men. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I stood there, I began to grieve as if it was my own sons, and I I put them there. And uh, each of the men turned out to be 19 years old, the same age I was when I encountered them in the jungle. Wow. And suddenly the Spirit of the Lord came over me, and he spoke very plain to David, you forgave your enemies years ago. We can never love them like I love mine. And I felt the love that Jesus had for those that nailed him to the cross that day. Mm-hmm. And after that, he led us to the old bunker. It's caved in. 
I pace off to 15 feet. Crawling the bushes, got to sprout off the original termite hill that now sits in my office today in New York. Mm. Wow. So when you go back, what do you what do you do there? Uh, I minister with the underground churches. I've actually been called four times by communist police, but God got us out every time. And uh, I work in Cambodia, Vietnam, Philippines, India, and other countries, but that's the main countries. And mm-hmm. uh, I preach the gospel to the underground churches, train them in the supernatural. Um, and uh, I travel other countries and also in U.S. churches doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. How many years between when you left there in uniform and when you w- returned to minister the gospel? Uh, that was, let's see, um, it must have been at least close to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, from the time when I came to God, he showed me the vision that we go back into Vietnam and preach the gospel. From the time I saw that vision, that I set foot on the hard-killing ground again. Uh, it was 17 years at that time. Mm-hmm. And I did not come to God. As an adult, I was 30 years old. I was bound by alcohol, a heavy smoker. I used to rather fight than eat. Now I'd rather eat than fight. I'm too old to fight, too fat to run. I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, you know what, sir? You you still are fighting, though. You are you are fighting uh, on a different battlefield, the spiritual um, battlefield that you're fight, you know that you're fighting on. So, uh, and you're still continuing to go back into to Vietnam. You're not done, are you? Oh, no, I'm not done. I'll be, every time there's enough funds available, I'm back over there. And um, also we have seen, uh, my wife and I figured out a while back very conservatively, all together between U.S. churches and overseas, we've seen over 10,000 miracles. Wow. And uh, many thousands come to God, and we're not the healer. Jesus is the healer. I tell people I cannot heal a fly of a headache, but he's the healer. And so uh, we return there and bring the supernatural power of God to the churches. We also travel churches in the U.S. Uh, and do the same thing. Let them see that, you know, he is still alive today. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. So everything okay. he ever was, he still is. That's right. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with um, because they, they haven't seen what you've seen. What are some kind of, what are some of the miracles? I know you see them here in the United States, but when you go overseas as well, what are some kind of miracles that God has used you to um, to perform in his name? Both in U.S. and overseas, we have the same percent of miracles in the U.S. churches as we do overseas. Mm. I refuse to say it only happens overseas. Like many people confess that, so that's all they get. Mm. But, uh, yes, I think we've seen many, many blinded eyes, totally blind people open um, the last trip into Cambodia, a man had not walked in 20 years, and he was totally healed. Another lady bowed over like a horseshoe, just like in Gospels with Jesus. And I prayed, she fell on the floor and stood up straight. And so we we see many cancers healed, uh, goiters healed, many women with barren wombs. Uh, that has been told they'll never have a child. My wife and I have children all over the world now. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we pray, and, and uh, they're able to conceive. And right. so we see arthritis healed, but everything you can imagine healed. 
in Poland uh, a few years ago. A man had six inches of his left leg between his ankle and his knee cut out surgically after an auto accident. In 30 minutes' time, it grew out in my hand. Wow. And we've seen many things like this, people born with like legs five inches shorter than the other, and see it just like within two or three seconds grow out in our hand. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And and it's certainly something that, that we need to hear more and more today, especially because there seems to be such such despair in the world. And so your ministry, I just wanted to have you on and let you share um, and thank you, obviously, for your service to the country but um, as we listen to your story and what you're still doing, to thank you for your service to God, and um, and we rejoice that God is, is using you. Now, you said you mentioned a website. If anyone wants to check out some pictures and more testimonies, or even to donate to what you're you're doing, um, what, what what what's the website address? It's www.riveroflifeworldmission.com. River of Life World Mission dot com. Okay. So that's WWW. They, they can also put in Cardo International dot com. Also it will go there. Okay. So that is www.riveroflifeworldmission.com and that's also did you say Cordo International dot com? Uh, correct. They both go to the same place. Okay. And let me just spell that Cordo is C-O-R-D-E-A-U. So that's C-O-R-D-E-A-U, CordoInternational.com. Well, Pastor Cordo, thank you so much for spending some time with the Right Voice Radio, sharing your, your stories. It's a miracle that you're here, and uh, we're grateful for all that you have done and all that you uh, continue to do. So uh, God bless you, and thank you again. Okay, thank you very much. God bless everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we will be back right after this. If tomorrow all the things were gone, And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky star To be living here today But the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American
Where there's pride in every American heart And it's time we stand and say Pregnant women to 
to give birth, but we also love the fact that there are people out there who are breathing life into into children who are already born and giving them hope. And in fact, a few a few weeks ago, we interviewed Randy Bolander, and he and his wife. We talked about they have lots of children, and they adopted lots more. And we talked to Randy about of their adoption house, which they call Zoe's house. And so we have been shining a, a spotlight on, on, on adoption. Well, today we're going to talk to Ann Knapp. She and her husband, Dan, are the parents of two adopted uh, young men, two adopted uh, boys. And they, the Bolanders, already had children. They already had uh, their family. But they opened their hearts and their homes to two more. And so Anne is our special guest and she's going to share with us um, some of her journey. In this in the short time that we have with her, we want to hear her journey and we want it to be an encouragement to, to all of you, whether you are parents or whether you are um, thinking about parenting, thinking about adopting, or you're just interested in a heartwarming story of um, what I consider heroism, really. So, Anne, thank you for joining us on the Right Voice Radio Show. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am grateful that you are here and that you're willing to spend some time sharing your story. So, Anne, again, in that in this short time that we that we do have with you, uh, we want to hear as much of your story as possible. So, we're going to jump right in, okay? Okay. All right. Now, well. You let me let me just start by saying this. You and your husband Dan were already parents before you adopted. I mentioned. Yes, we have three biological children. Three biological children, and you took in two more. Yes. Okay. So tell us. I, I know you said you had three, but tell us a little bit about your family prior to the adoption. Well, um, at the time of the adoption. Um, we had uh, two boys and a girl, um, Frank, Austin, and Molly. Uh, we had thought our family was quite, in fact, um, before having had Molly, I had a, a, a difficult miscarriage, and um, we hadn't planned on having any more than two. But Molly was a miracle, and after we had her, we certainly felt as though we were finished. But mm-hmm. uh, I guess God had other plans for us. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. We okay. actually kind of stumbled into the whole experience. Um, we had never considered adoption. Um, okay. You had never considered adoption, which is interesting because I know never. that that there are probably lots of people who, who feel the same way. So how did you come to that decision to adopt, something that seems so daunting to so many? Well, uh, I guess it was about the summer of 2006. Um, my husband just felt a burden to pray for mm-hmm. me. Um, he just felt that God was getting ready to do something amazing in my life. Um, and I never connected these dots until we got all at the other end of the experience. Mm-hmm. But um, I was I was driving in my car, and I heard an announcement on a radio station um, about some missionaries from Haiti who were speaking. And my husband has a real heart for missions, so... I thought I'd try to get in touch and hear from the missionaries, but unfortunately we missed that opportunity. Um, but the pastor of the church um, where they were speaking, when I finally got him on the phone, he said to me, I- I'm sorry, you missed them. And I did something I've never done before. I invited a complete stranger over for dinner. And um, <laughs> he, came, he came to the 
dinner and uh, actually told us that he and his wife were in the process of adopting a little girl from the orphanage that these missionaries um, had started in Haiti. And Mm -hmm. uh, after they got through, they told us their story. They left. I looked at my husband and I said, well, we could never adopt. It's Mm -hmm. expensive. We couldn't do And I just kept saying, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that. And my husband just quoted scripture to me and said, yeah, take care of widows and orphans in their distress. And it was a Mm -hmm. no-brainer for him. Right. And then God just wouldn't let it rest. I just couldn't get it off my heart. Wow. You know, and you mentioned the, the financial difficulties or the financial consideration, I should say, because that is something that people think about a lot. It's expensive to adopt, isn't it? Yes, it's very expensive. Uh, in, in fact, however, um, Haiti is one of the less expensive countries from which to adopt. Um, at that time, it was estimated between twelve dollars and $15,000 in total, and, and we were living in a mobile home. We had much debt, and, and I thought, well, this can't happen. But amazingly, once we started the process, once we launched on this process, uh, the money just started coming in. I, I had friends who heard about it and donated money to us. Um, my husband's business really took off. And, in fact, by the time we finished the process, we had built our own home and were debt-free. Um, wow. So we were just so blessed. And, in fact, when we started out, we only intended – we finally made the decision just to adopt Ed Nell, and Ronald was was a happy accident <laughs> along the way. Okay, um, and we'll talk about that. So you have okay. you have two. You have Ed Nell, and you have Ronald. Now, how how old are they? Um, Ronald it will be twenty three in January, and mm-hmm. Ed Nell just turned eleven in July. Um, okay, and they actually came to be with us in two thousand and ten. So mm-hmm. Ronald was. 17 and Ednell was um, five. Uh, mm-hmm. And we actually have legally adopted Ronald as well. I and mean, people often think, how can you adopt a 17 year old? But Ronald needed a family just as much as Ednell did. Um, exactly. His, Even in his yeah. age, right? Yeah, so, his story it was a very tragic one. So, I mean, what was the process like? Because I know it's not easy to go through, to no. go through the hoops and all that. So let's talk about um, let's talk about it now. You had Ednell first. So what was yes. that process like? He well, was in Haiti, uh, right? Excuse me. He was in Haiti. Yes, he was in Haiti. Um, we finally decided that we were just going to make some inquiries, and um, we talked about it and decided that no one in our family would want their position usurped necessarily. So we decided we were going to adopt a child younger than our youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we downloaded pictures off the Internet from this orphanage where the pastor had adopted his girl, um, and there were several of them. There were about a dozen boys younger than Molly at the time, so that would be boys under the age of six. And um, ironically, I showed the pictures, the different pictures, to my children all separately, and they all picked the same child. Um, oh. Now, of course, you know, that's that was just saying I didn't think much of it, and the next step was to write a letter to the orphanage. And when I did, um, we were amazed to find our letter back approving us to move ahead in the process suggested this same little fellow that they had identified in the pictures. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of in my head, but I'm I'm an academic. I approach everything academically. And I um, had to seek counsel from a social worker, from teachers, from our pediatrician, mm-hmm. uh, from an stateside adoption agency and I just had lists and lists of what to look for and what not to look for finally in November of 2006 we decided to visit the orphanage and we went down 
and it just, my world turned upside down. Uh, it is not, unless you've been to a third world nation, you really can't grasp yeah. poverty and, and just degradation and the lack of value for human life uh, that we witnessed was, was incredible. There were 126 kids at the orphanage at the time, and when we walked in, uh, we were just besieged. Um, I mean, they clung to us. They mm-hmm. were so hungry for love. And um, in the middle of all this, we heard very loud screaming in Creole, and uh, a little guy who uh, was just toddling to the front was pushing big cho- bigger children out of the way and grabbed a hold of my pant leg and looked up at me and said, Mama. And then he looked mm-hmm. at Dan and said, Papa. Oh. And we didn't know who he was, and we turned to look at the missionary whose mouth was hanging open, and she said, that's him. That's Ed Nell. And we were in shock because he hadn't been told. Uh, he's normally a very shy, withdrawn child, and she'd never seen him behave that way. So all of my lists went out the window, and that was it. <laughs> so we moved <laughs> in the process with Ed Nell. He was two at the time. Uh, thinking the process would only be a year and a half, um, but mm-hmm. about midway, the United Nations um, suggested legislation that the U.S. adopted called the Hague Convention, um, which mm-hmm. required countries from which Americans were adopting to meet certain requirements. And Haiti was too poor of a nation. They didn't have the money. They didn't have mm-hmm. the resources to meet those the criteria. So our adoption stalled right in the middle. Mm-hmm. It picked up again, um, so it was about a three-year process. It picked up again uh, shortly before the earthquake. Mm-hmm. We got a, a message from the orphanage in um, the winter of early winter, around Christmas time of 2009, that our file had had moved ahead. They had it. It the process wouldn't be too much longer. Mm-hmm. And then a month later, on January 12th, we got a phone call that um, Haiti had just experienced an earthquake. Um, We had no idea if he was dead or alive, Um, if anybody from the orphanage had survived. It took three days to finally get confirmation that, in fact, um, one of the two homes that the the orphanage uh, hosted um, was seriously damaged, the other one partially damaged, but that all of the children had gotten out in time. Um, they were brought, uh, 96 of them who were in some stage of adoption were brought by Chris Nungaster, who is the nurse who runs the orphanage, to the U.S. Embassy, where they slept on the floor for three days, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. three nights, um, until they could be airlifted out on yes. uh, humanitarian parole visas. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, that was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is it, is it fair to say that the earthquake, as tragic as it was, it expedited Ednell's yes. yes. uh it, it did. It, it expedited it you did. actually getting him. It did, but it didn't because because we were toward the end of the process. Mm-hmm. It probably mm-hmm. would have only been a couple of more months, but then again, mm-hmm. those would have been a few more months that we didn't have him. Yes. Um, unfortunately, uh, we were almost done with the international adoption when we got him home here to New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, we were required to restart the adoption so that it would be a national adoption. So Ednell has actually been adopted twice, internationally and nationally. Wow. Um, okay. That's so. Wow. That's really interesting. The whole, the whole, your whole journey is interesting. I mean, it seems to me that you had confirmation after confirmation that that not only should you adopt, but that this child was to be your that child. child. That, that child. That child. Handpicked. Uh, handpicked. Over and over. Right. Again. Yes. Absolutely. He was handpicked. Uh, 
Yeah. It was determined ahead of time. And I feel the same way about Ronald. We knew Ronald because from the time we began to mm-hmm. adopt Ed now, um, we decided that, you know, he needed to know us as parents. He had been abandoned at the, at the, at the orphanage when he was 18 months old, and he had you know, most likely very little, if any, memory of, of parents. Uh, so mm-hmm. we decided that we were going to have to travel back frequently, um, and we did that. Uh, and we began to lead mission trips um, to do vacation Bible school down there, um, not only, of course, to, to, uh, to work with the children, but, of course, to see our boy. So we knew Ronald as one of the older boys. Um, we knew that he had a mitral valve disease, a serious heart condition. Um, while we were going through that period of time, that, that three years that the adoption was taking, um, we watched Ronald walk through some difficult times. His heart failed. Um, they found a, a family, a host family, um, up here in New York State who was willing to um, host him and they found a doctor willing to donate services and got him a visa and got him here. He had the heart surgery. Um, then the family decided to adopt him. But uh, unfortunately, he did not know that his father was giving him up for adoption. So they allowed mm. him to go back to Haiti while the adoption process was finished. The problem is that uh, his heart valve failed while he was back in Haiti and uh, he was dying. <clears throat> but he, it was a paperwork issue. We couldn't have processed two applications for visas at the same time, one for adoption and one for the purpose of, of medical treatment. Okay. So it took about two years to get him out, and by the time he, well, everything was done and he was on his way home to New York State, he was uh, having heart failure and had double pneumonia. So they gave him only a 20% chance to live. So when he came up here to Albany Med, um, you know, we knew him. So we, we went up to pray for him and to see him and help him feel a little more comfortable. Uh, and he that was in April of 2009. And he um, was not in good shape. They, they didn't give him a, a great chance to survive. And he was in Albany Med from April till July. And finally, in July, uh, they had to do emergency open-heart surgery. Um, and again, we went up to pray for him because the doctors didn't give him a good prognosis. And, of course, he survived and thrived and healed <laughs> from the surgery. Yes. And then about a year later, his adoption fell through. And the option was he would either be sent to an institution here somehow or be returned to Haiti. Um, so we took him. You took and, him. Yeah, with him came another boy uh, from the orphanage uh, who needed a place to live. So I actually wound up with two of them, and uh, good friends of ours, the McKays, um, decided yeah. to adopt Michael. And uh, Ronald has been with us ever since. It's amazing, amazing journey, and it's, it's the rest is history, as they say. And uh, and the the amazing part is, two boys may not be the children of my womb, but they are the children of my heart. And mm-hmm. they are as much a part of this family as the other three who were born right into it. And that and is so, yes, that is so important. It's something that we that we hear from, from families who adopt. And it's, it's like, these are my children. It's not, well, these are my, are my babies. Are, they're my children. Nope. And that's, that's such a wonderful thing, what, how that happens, you know? So I mm-hmm. have to, for the sake of time, I have to, 
I want to I want to ask you this question mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, briefly, and then I, I want to give you the, the final word on something. Your boys are, are Haitian, and you're a, a Caucasian family. Did mm-hmm. anyone? Did people discourage you because of race or because of culture? Um, some did. I, I will say um, it was a bit generational. Um, the older older people tended to say to us, "Are you sure?" Uh, that you're going to encounter problems. Um, we did have a child advocacy specialist from the courts, actually, who told us to be prepared for, um, you know, extensive prejudice. But I have to say, this community has been so welcoming. We have not encountered that at all. Um, I have experienced a few times, you, usually it's people of color who will say to me, I can't believe you did this. I mean, they're just really surprised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that we would do this, um, but for the most part, people have been so welcoming and so accepting. Yeah. In fact, when Ronald graduated from high school, he is the only child who the school gave a standing ovation to. Wow. And this is a primarily Caucasian district with a very low um, interracial population. Wow. Um, and it was. And whenever anybody hears Ronald's name, they just say, "Oh, we we love Ronald." And, and so. We, so- what I'm hearing, uh-huh. what I'm hearing too, is that that race should be a hindrance. Absolutely not. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. We have very good African American friends in in Hudson who came alongside of us and said, "We're going to help you learn to raise up a black man," <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think you know how to do it. So <laughs> they need to have some. They need to have some uh, idea of, of culture somewhat different than, than our family. And we've just had a beautiful church family who have come alongside of us. And, and where they felt we've, we've been lacking, they have filled in the gaps. Well, that's so good. We're black. When, you have, when you have people, when you have friends, it's all, you know, just all one, one family like that. Okay, here's the final word. I'm going to just uh, throw this out at you. If there's someone out there who who's listening who may be thinking about adopting or maybe, I don't know, maybe their mind says there's no way I can do that. In just, a, I don't know, a few seconds, what would you say to someone who has a home and has a heart, um, but maybe just really, really unsure about adopting? How would you, how might you encourage that? Well, one of the reasons why we decided to adopt is because we are so blessed in this nation. We have so much, and there are so many people out there, even even in our own neighborhoods, who who are lacking um, uh, well-adjusted families who who can love children and offer so much. And I looked at it first about what I was giving. Mm-hmm. That was nothing compared to what I got. The wow. blessings are tenfold. I, I have never regretted, nor do I ever imagine I could ever regret this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, though I went into it with doubts, I have nothing but blessings. Um, raising these children is is one of the greatest gifts of my life, mm-hmm. and I would thank That's beautiful. I, I just want to thank you, Anne, for, for all that you do, and obviously your husband, you and your husband are a team, and, and not only you, your husband, but your your uh your whole family, your children as well. You have five children. Uh you and Dan are doing a wonderful thing. And so I just want to thank you and I want to also thank you for for sharing your story with us. I believe it will encourage someone. Thank you for coming thank on the right voice.
Thank you. All right. God bless <laughs> Many you. Blessings. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And so there's the story of Ann Knapp. Take a listen now to this, this PSA, this public service announcement about adoption, and let it speak to you. If you want to be a parent, it doesn't matter how you play, what you wear, how you dance, or even what direction life takes you. You just need to be there. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care don't need perfection. They just need you. So there you have it. We have some heroes among us. We have families like the Knapp family who are willing to open their hearts and their homes to children who are not biologically their children, but become every much, every bit as much a part of their family as their biological children. They are heroes, and we wanted to take a moment there for National Adoption Month. And also, we have heroes like David Cordell, Pastor David Cordell, who uh, risked everything uh, in, in the war, risked everything uh, in the military, and, and God has given him an amazing testimony, and he still goes back and ministers there. Amazing. So those are the heroes among us. Now, we have lots of news. We're going to take a few minutes. We, we only have a few minutes left, and we want to talk about some, some news and some politics going on in the world today. Uh, last Tuesday, when we were on, on the air, we, were, um, we talked about the fact that there was a Fox Business debate, and, uh, and that debate was, uh, was given a lot of, of praise in terms of the substance of the debate, unlike the previous GOP presidential debate with, uh, done by CNBC, which was like, uh, I guess they were trying to create some kind of cat fight. It was an embarrassment. But Fox Business did a, did a really, uh, really good job, so the consensus seems to be, and that was the GOP uh, candidates. But many people seemed unaware of the fact that the Democrats also had a presidential debate, that there, that there was um, uh, a schedule. I mean, I, people said, oh, I didn't even know there was a debate, or there was a debate, but, but there was. And that was on Saturday, and we had, of course, Bernie Sanders and the presumptive nominee being, being uh, Hillary Clinton. And without rehashing all of that, I do want to point out a couple of the takeaways, because one of those takeaways from that has gotten a lot of press, and that is the refusal of all three of those Democratic candidates to use the term radical Islam. And this was Saturday, and obviously our hearts go out to our allies in France at the horrific terrorist attack on Friday night in Paris. Absolutely horrific and unimaginable. Uh, And from what we understand, almost 150 murdered, hundreds more injured in Paris. Just um, something out of a horror horror movie, but unfortunately it was reality. Um, And so having said that, the next day we have the Democratic presidential debate. And so the candidates were asked about the term radical Islam. And you know what? I'm, I'm just floored. I'm not surprised 
but I'm I'm still floored. There's some things that don't surprise you, but they you still can't get used to it. Uh, can't get used to them, and that is the fact that they will not say radical Islam. And what bothers me by that, number one, is that if you will not identify the enemy, I'm trying to figure out whether you can muster up the courage if you were to be commander-in-chief to take on that enemy. We see that in our president. We have a president who also refuses to use that, that term. And so the candidates, one by one, begin to talk about the fact that <clears throat> that um, our enemy is not uh, all Muslims. And, and the point is, everybody knows that. No one has said that. But we are dealing with radical Islam. And the fact that they can say it is just, it's just mind-boggling. And what bothers me by that is that it seems as if the whole point is to to appeal to a, a voting block, and and they don't want to disenfranchise, I suppose, uh, a voting block. And and so the thing about it is that even 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 Muslims are being uh, are being targeted, obviously by by ISIS, and and they will tell you that this is a radical. This is radical Islam. They don't want. They're not identifying with with these people or or slaughtering, uh, slaughtering people as we as we saw in France. So um, it just it's just sickening, especially when you look at you're looking at television, you're looking at these images, you're seeing the horror, you're seeing the lives lying on the ground, and yet we have people running for president who refuse to to call a spade a spade. That that's an issue there. And then Bernie Sanders, my goodness, first of all, he just baffles me to begin with, but he. Still says that our, and even after that, even after these attacks, he says that climate change is the greatest threat that we have. And I'm just like, are you serious? Really? Climate change is our greatest threat. And after seeing all the blood and all the lives lost and the horror and the heartache and the fear and the panic and the terror, and you're going to tell me that climate change? Get a grip, people. Get a grip. So that's, that's, uh, anyway. <clears throat> and then our president, President Obama, gives a, a press conference uh, in, Tur- in Turkey uh, yesterday. And <clears throat> he has said that he is not changing strategy in terms of our, our dealings with uh, ISIS. Um, he called our, uh, he called what happened in Paris a, quote, setback. And, um, and I'm, I'm not I'm not even going to suggest that that he doesn't think it's horrible. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that words matter, and uh, you know it's it's more than a, it's more than a setback, you know. And if he thinks that we're doing enough, then he needs to think again. Uh, and then we we have the issue of the fact that uh, I guess over a year ago he I, it, I think it was over a year ago now that he referred to ISIS as the JV team, and so. The press questioned him on that, and I'm telling you, the man got an attitude. He doesn't want to be questioned he, uh, on that, and he doesn't want to be questioned on what our strategy is. So his response was to to get an attitude and to basically say, "Okay, I'm going. I was already asked this question. I already answered this question." But the bottom line was, he's not answering the question, obviously, to the satisfaction of those in the room, because we're trying to get more clarity. 
what are what are you what do you have to say about referring to them as the JV team? What do we have to do to wipe them out? And all we get from him is that we are intensifying, and that's his quote, but not changing strategy. Something has to give. But what he did get very, very passionate about, in addition to giving attitude, was the Syrian refugee uh, crisis. And that's a hot, hot topic because we're still planning on taking in, I believe, 10,000 Syrian refugees. Now, one of the terrorists, uh, or at least one of the terrorists from uh, Paris, was apparently uh, apparently came in through Syria through that through the refugee issue, and now we're talking about bringing thousands here. And we've got governors. Last I heard was was twenty something governors who said they're not coming to our state. The president says we are Americans. We open our hearts. This is we open our land. This is what we do. And I have to tell you that I'm I'm somewhat torn on that issue because I know that these these that there are people the majority of these people are are trying to survive and they're they're threatened by ISIS and their lives are on the line and they're being slaughtered and and so I understand that but at the same time the number one priority doesn't the number one priority have to be protecting Americans and unless we can properly vet those who come in and I'm not sure we we can do that but unless we can properly vet, how are we in the times that we're living in with the threat that we're facing, how do we just open our, our borders and say, well, come on in because that's who we are. You know what? We are a generous people. But we're not living in the same times that we used to be living in, and this is real. And we cannot continue to approach terrorism and, and terrorists as though they're JV. They're not. They're showing that they're not JV and that they mean business. And so although I'm saying, man, we need to help, there's another part of me that's saying, oh, my goodness, we've got to exercise some wisdom here. And number one is to protect our 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 own. I hate to say that, but my goodness gracious. So anyway, we're, we're going to have to see how this plays out because these governors say no, not here. And the president is insisting that this is who we are, and therefore it will be. Uh, we will open our our gates, so to speak, uh, to to the refugees. I am going to take a very quick break right now, and we're going to play another uh, PSA, public service announcement for National Adoption Month, and then I'll be right back with something else. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes, B, console her, don't worry, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot, or C, find her a new boyfriend. Nice single boy. That was weird. As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Okay, welcome back. You're listening to the Right Voice Radio Show. I am your host, Adrian Ross. And we were just talking about the terrorist attacks in, in Paris and, uh, and the response to that uh, from our president, President Obama. But I want to transition to this last segment. We have been watching unfold on the universe, at the University of Missouri, I'm in Missouri, by the way, at the University of Missouri protesters. We, we, uh, we know that 
they have been um, protesting uh, alleged racism on, on campus. And as a result of that, we know that the president resigned. We know that the chancellor has been, uh, they say, reassigned. So basically, they've been forced out. And we know that um, the protesters are making demands. So they got that. But, you know, they got the, 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 the uh, members of the administration being forced out, and yet they still have, have these demands. Uh, they want a certain percentage of their uh, of their faculty or the staff to be to be black, and uh, so so they you know to me it's gotten beyond it's gotten beyond the issue. If there's racism to be dealt with, let's deal with it. But let's have a conversation about it. Just trying to get people fired um, because because you're dealing with these issues. I'm not sure handles the issue. Uh, so but but. Now they want free tuition. They want, like I said, uh, I guess 10% of, uh, of the um, faculty or staff to be, to be black. Um, they brought on a former civil rights lawyer. His last name is Middleton. They're not happy yet. But having said all that, I have to, I have to share this. After the Paris attacks, a bunch of tweets went out from people who are upset that the terrorist attacks in Paris are getting more attention than they are getting. And I am, I'm just baffled. Let me read some of these tweets to you. One person tweeted, interesting how the news reports are covering the Paris terrorist attack, but said nothing about the terrorist attack at hashtag Mizzou. Someone else said, not taking away from Paris. We love y'all, but we have terrorists in the USA called KKK. Hashtag Mizzou. Gov got work to do. I you couldn't believe it uh if you if you didn't if you didn't see it, I'm sure. Here's another one. Racist white people kill me. You want everyone to have sympathy for all caps your tragedy, but you have none for ours. Hashtag get the and it's spelled out out of here. Hashtag Mizzou. Interesting, though. You want everyone to have sympathy for your tragedy. Aren't we all in this together? Here's another one. Maybe if you people get some respect and tolerance to hear our outcries, then we'll care more about yours. We are not heartless like you. Hmm. Here's one. Not to take away from Paris at all, but just how they're getting news coverage and the world's support, we deserve it too. Another, Americans have more sympathy for what's going on in Paris than our own citizens at hashtag Mizzou, but hashtag all lives matter. And check this out. The fact there are some of these journalists using Paris as a way to sweep hashtag Mizzou under the rug, repulsive. Hmm. It's black kids trapped in their rooms in Mizzou, but y'all talking about hashtag pray for Paris, and then it has written out F Paris, hashtag pray for Mizzou. And there's a lot of other things here uh, that I could go on and on, but you get the point. This is where we've come to. 
This is where we come to. I am pitting you against me. Here's one. Notice how white people easily empathize with victims of international terrorism while denying the domestic terrorism inflicted upon us. We have lost our minds. Again, where racism exists, it needs to be called out. But we're at the point now where we have to say my tragedy is greater than your tragedy, where we've got hundreds wounded, about 150 murdered, and you want to you want to bring up a situation where you're putting whites against blacks and your tragedy versus our tragedy, and that's why and they wonder why people don't take them seriously. How about we deal with this as adults? How about we deal with the issues that 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 matter in a way that makes sense? How about we stop making demands that are unreasonable so that we can actually deal with any issues that take place? Because people do not take seriously when you act a fool and you put out tweets like this and you pit one against the, the other. We better get it together because you know what? Those, the, the terrorists, they don't care whether you live in Paris, France. They don't care if you're at the University of Missouri. They don't care if you're in your parents' basement, which is where some of these people are probably tweeting from. They care about their agenda. We need to get our act together. And so I needed to rant about that because that's ridiculous. Anyway, I want to thank you once again for joining the Right Voice Radio Show. I am going to end today with um, a bit of happy news here. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's really, really cool. And that is the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, has a new book that just came out on Monday, just came out on Monday, uh, November 16th which was yesterday, it's called Sweet Freedom. It's a devotional. So for every issue you could probably think of in life, there's an answer in the Bible. There's an answer in the Word. And so she takes real-life issues, um, whether it's the Second Amendment, whether it's how you're dealing with your children or adversity or uh, our leadership and praying for leaders and voting or whether it's even more controversial issues like abortion or um, it might even be same-sex marriage, whatever it is, whatever your issue is, my goodness, God has an answer. And so this devotional called Sweet Freedom, uh, is, is, is like I said, it just came out. So take a look. That's some happy news. We need the word of God in our lives and we need some things that we can apply to, to current situations that we're dealing with. So, again, I am so grateful to have your ear today on the Right Voice radio show. As you know, we're here every Tuesday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, and that's 7 to 8 Central. So God bless you and enjoy the rest of your week. Do not allow the craziness, and it is crazy, going on in this world to steal your joy. God is good, and you know what? We will be stronger as long as we rely on the one who's strongest. God bless you.